We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Encouraging signs as it becomes evident that the executives at Arsenal listen to the podcast. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the Blackman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, there was a fans forum. We're going to go over that with Tim. But, like, um, they expressed that they wanted to do some things that were things that on the very last episode of this very podcast, we expressed needed to be done. And so I think it's evident. And, and look, I'm a big believer in Occam's Razor. Absent any other information, the most obvious things must prove to be true. Um... I think it can only be the case that they listen to the podcast. And, you know, frankly, I want to welcome them. I want to welcome Vinay and, and Josh and Tim and and Mr. Garlic, is what we now call him on the podcast, and just say, you know, guys, like, we have some suggestions. If you're taking our suggestions, since it does seem to be the case, you know, I, I do think that Erling Holland may make a big difference to us. You know, I would not that we want to push in direction of transfers, but just something to consider. Uh Tim will join us after the break to discuss the fans' forum and some of the things that came out of that and something that he's written about this week. But here with me now is Clive. You can find him on Twitter, Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Well, I'm, as you know, uh, a little scrambled with the schedule today. I'm on a plane this morning, my time, which meant that we are recording the pod at a time we don't normally record it. I asked you guys if you were available at the time. You uh, kindly said, yes, we are available at that time. And then I realized that the time I sent you was the wrong time. And now we are doing it at the wrong time, uh, which is the right time for me, but the wrong time for you. So we're doing it in sections. That's how it's going to work. There will be an instant reaction after uh, the Brentford game on Saturday. But as for... Uh, yesterday, Clive, you and I did a Wolves rewatch available to patrons who want it, but even if you don't want it, uh, we watched the first half, and I thought that there were some interesting things to take away from it, and I'd just sort of like to get, you know, maybe having watched it and digested it now again, your thoughts on the evolution of the system, we'll talk about how that's going to impact Brentford, but the thing that does seem clear is that it is once again changing a little bit. It is not that traditional double pivot. It had pretty big ramifications from what we could see for the role of Shaka in particular, um, and and I'm curious how you how you feel about it, having watched it again. Yeah, I, I suppose 
something I'm into at the moment. I did a tweet on it this morning, right? So when I'm doing my own sort of team talks, I always talk about teams within teams and playing in pods, right? So in rugby, they have the uh, they use pods a lot, fours that work together in pods and backs that work in pods, and you create overloads, etc. So I'm looking at Arsenal. I always like to talk about football in a very simplistic way, and it is very simplistic. It always is, right? So you have a, a left-sided pod which you're developing with... Um, Tierney, Shaka, and Martelli, right? So that's the left-sided pod. You have a right-sided pod with Tommy or Cedric, with uh, Odegaard and, and Saka. And you have a base pod, right? And we use a goalkeeper a lot, right? So that's changed this year. So the base pod's got Ramsdale, Gabriel, and White. And I call it the over. I call it the overburdened spine, the glue, the, the people that we look to to hold this all together. And, and that is party and straight down the middle in Lacazette. And they're there as almost like offensive and defensive release valves and glue type players and if you think about that in your mind have just just sort of triangle on the outsides your line down the middle your triangle at the back you can sort of see the basis of your team structure in your own mind and when you see that you think okay that sounds interesting so what can we do to make that better right so you can get a different dynamic in the right hand channel as well with Odegaard although he does look very slick and it, it does sort of put a focus on Shaka's role because, you know, I'm talking about these sort of pods in an on-the-ball basis, shall we say. When you go off the ball, they slightly change. You know, and Shaka and Party become a, a team together within the team as a screen in front. And so things slightly change. But you can't help but feel, because we all care about what we do on the ball primarily, even though most majority of the game you're off the ball. <laughs> so, like, um, you do look at the Shaka role and think, hmm, that's an interesting one. Could I have a little bit more deftness, agility? maybe a bit of carrying and penetration like Odegaard has got, but maybe a little bit more physicality in that role to create the balance that you need across the team, across the midfield. Can I offer something else in that position which may give Smithrow more chances to play there? Could Smithrow be part of the right-hand pod? Could, you know, it, it starts to make it quite interesting when you think about transfers, as I do most of my waking life, <laughs> think about transfers, how we can improve this group and how we can improve the dynamic and how we can change it. Could we add wing backs that completely change the starting position of Martinelli and Saka? And I think we're developing something here. And once you see that picture in your mind, I think we can all start to think about the players we'd all like to change to make it better. And that's just a, a continuous improvement mindset, which most fans have walking yeah. around every single day. <clears throat> Well, it's so interesting because there are players that you're still learning about, but there are always players in a team that you you know that have been there a while that you you feel you know the strengths and weaknesses. And yeah. Shaq is certainly one that I think we know very well. He's a player that if you ask me, where do you want to deploy a player like that? Where's he going to thrive? You know, I've always sort of felt he's a player where the more the game is in front of him, the more that he can look up and see the pitch and see big spaces and hit big crosses or, you know, play a pass down the wing between two defenders, you know, with pace like that. He, he can do that. But as yeah. the spaces get smaller, as the game shrinks in front of him and grows behind him, that would be <clears throat> an area where he might be less comfortable. And so now we find him between the lines more, in the half space, playing in Martinelli in the, the channels, playing Tierney in, but not with the big raking ball up the left-hand side, but the little stab pass out to the wing. And it's a little bit different. Now, when we drop into our low block, you know, when we when we do get pushed back, the role is a lot more familiar. But one of the things that I thought was really encouraging about the start of the Wolves game, I couldn't believe how many times they gave it away trying to build play from the back because of our press. We're doing a great job filling the passing lanes and forcing them to go long. 
Do we have to win more second balls? Absolutely. But in terms of not being able to play around us, I definitely think that our press has gotten better. And one of the reasons for that is the shape isn't as much 4-4-2 now. And those players, Odegaard and Shaka, who are playing in the half space, playing like eights, are really helping to cut down the passing lanes. And Wolves really struggled to get out around it. So it is an interesting question because if you're going to continue to do that, you know, especially in a game like at home against Brentford, and you're going to try to take the ball off them from the back, when you win those balls back and you're switching quickly, from defense to attack, and you're transitioning to trying to create chances with a quick one-time pass or carrying the ball into the penalty area and, and, and sliding it back for a striker if we had one of those things. like That is a very different remit, a very different set of, of objectives to what we might associate with Shaka. And I have to say, I think Shaka had maybe his best season for us last season because he was able to see a lot of the game in front of him the way he was deployed. And this is a big change. So it'll be interesting to see if there's a player that we can move into that role in a different way. Now, it raises the question of the left side in general, because I also think a player, and this may have been because Wolves played with a with a, a five at the back, and so they yeah. had wing backs. But Clive... It this out, yeah. Yeah, yeah it does. But, but it, it may have meant that Tierney was doing less of the sort of overlapping, pushing Martinelli more central. He had to cover more space going backwards. But like... Watching it again, you know, in real time, I thought it was a, an off game for Tierney. And watching back the first half, I didn't see anything to change my mind about that. And I'm wondering how you feel about Tierney's role, because when we've been good over the past few seasons, which unfortunately has been in fits and starts more than anything, I think Tierney has been a really key component of that. But lately, we have not seen his influence be as crucial when we've played well. And in some instances, we've played well, I think, without him necessarily being on the same page. Is this just a form issue in your mind, or is the change of system maybe giving Tierney a little bit of a different job that he's less comfortable with? Because he's much less, he seems to be much less fluid attacking now, and and there's just some warts appearing in his game that maybe we didn't see earlier. Right, so I don't judge my fullbacks on how many crosses you get in. I didn't judge Bellerin the same way, and I judge him in a different way. I judge him in an ability to defend, to be all caught by that I mean combined, combining within your pod, right? In different ways. So can you go around it? Can you combine short passes? Can you switch to play with either foot? Right? Can you do these all caught things? And I think Tom Yasu is a great example of doing a lot of good things, but because of his slightly different profile, he's a centre back, right back. So he's happy defending, defending his side. We roll around into a three on occasions and we build that way. And then that's absolutely perfect, which gives on a certain day gives the left side license to really push on and be part of the five channels. On other days, we don't. And so I look at the roles and responsibilities and say, what are you doing? Are you keeping the ball? Are you defending your side well? Are you staying narrow with your left centre-back? All these sort of fundamental things which make our defensive record really, really good, by the way. So I'm not overly concerned. But I do think sometimes in life you see opportunities Right? And there's opportunities to do different things. I take it the weekend, a slightly different role. Smith Rowe more likely playing that left-hand side. And we could see the Tierney that you like in this game, with Smith Rowe tucking in one lane and covering for him with Shaka in that left-hand zone. And suddenly you'll say, Elliot, what a great player he is, blah, blah, blah. Do you see what I mean? And so I tend to look at it a more of a, a role and responsibility thing and a what you're doing on and off the ball than than a flashing form. If you ask me honestly, 
and I am honest, and those on on the I, Discord. I'd like to think so. What would be the point? Uh, <laughs> I've been intimating this for a while. I, I don't think our left side is as balanced as our right side. Funny enough, and uh, the Tommy Asu Odegaard Saka three is top class, right? Mm-hmm. Top class. On the left side, we talk about Tierney, Shaka, and Martelli. Now Martelli is still learning positionally, although we, as a player, we have no issues there with him. But there are sometimes I think he spends too. He's too wide, too long, didn't spin off off the ball quickly enough. Um, but that's all to come. He does some fantastic stuff, right? So it's not a complaint. He's 20 years of age, God's sake. So that's not a worry there. I do worry sometimes about Tierney's uh, robustness and ability to stay injury-free. And I do, and I would like to see him rotated more to be protected for those big games and away games, where sometimes Nuno has struggled in away games in cauldron environments, shall we say. But some of the home games I watched earlier this year, particularly West Ham and Aston Villa, Nuno Tavares is outstanding. And where we need something at home where we want to be in charge and push people back, there's a role for him to play. And I would, and I don't want to see this thing where. He, you're in the first level and it's got to take an earthquake to get you out. Play the guy that's suitable for that day. And if, for example, Tommy Asu comes back and we really want to push on that left-hand side, make the change. No drama. If it suits the game that's available, we've got Brentford the weekend, they're quite a physical team. Cedric was brilliant against Wolves, you know, against, you know, facing up against a wing-back. Against a more aerial um, Brentford, we might need something else. Make the change. If it means holding comes back in, make the change. Don't get obsessed with the first 11. Just look at what you're playing and what's required and make sure you have to you apply your resources to deal with it. So, again, the left-hand side, I've got a linkling there, mate, that we could improve. Mm-hmm. And I've not even mentioned your mate yet, Granit Shaka. So there's an inkling there we can improve. And But that's the exciting thing, isn't it? You know, you go straight to YouTube and I think, oh, wow, I like that left winger. We can move him here. We can move people around. But that left midfielder, to combine with our left back, is the one that I sway on massively. What type of player there works for us or what combination of players work for us? Because I think the central role is locked down. I think Sammy can underpin that as he gets older. But the left the left side of the diamond, you know the one I keep talking about, mm-hmm. that rolls into a six and slightly to a left eight, that player has got a unique profile. And I'd be so interested to see what people think. Um, I sway on it, mate. You may have thought yourself on what type of player that required in that role. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Because there is always a temptation as a fan to want to see your team play the way you play with them in FIFA, right? And if you're setting up Arsenal on FIFA right now, you're probably trying to get in Martinelli and Saka and Smith Rowe and Odegaard, maybe even Pepe and Stella Lacazette. You know, yeah. you know who the fun players are, who the players who can score goals and create goals are, and you want them all on the pitch. Whether that's a realistic way to play or not is a different consideration, whether it can actually work in practice. Um, and, you know, we're going to get to see, I think almost certainly, Smith Rowe play in the absence of Martinelli in this upcoming game. I assume he will just take Martinelli's role, and that will slightly change the dynamic of how we play on the left-hand side. But ultimately, that that left side, if Martinelli's going to stay there, if he's not going to move centrally, that left eight, I, I guess what I would say to you, Clive, is if Odegaard can play the right eight, is there any reason we need a central midfielder playing the left eight? You know, um, and I... 
I, I can't think of any particular reason. Now, maybe maybe it, it's game to game. There may be games where you feel someone who's just a little more attuned to their defensive responsibilities, although that's certainly up for debate. Someone who's got, you know, I, I realize experience is also a word we might want to throw out there because it is such a young team overall, um, and, and there are leaders on the pitch. But, you know, you see what we have on the right-hand side with Sack and Odegaard, and on the left-hand side, we've got Martinelli in a central midfielder right now. You know, maybe Tierney is meant to be more of that support. But I, one of the things that we we watched also in, in that game was the way Martinelli was playing. And I, I wouldn't yeah. say it was his best game, but just the way he is perpetually progressing the ball or going forward or looking to make a forward run. There was a moment in the game that we saw where it was, Ode, maybe it was Odegaard, I think. Odegaard gets the ball sort of near the top of the box. And there's a run, a diagonal run available in behind the defense. The 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 Wolves' defensive line had become broken, and Lacazette just pins the cent- center back at the back post instead of making that diagonal run across the uh, you know across that broken line of the defense. Yeah. And one of the big debates, and I'll talk to Tim about this a little bit as well, but it's the question of there is no denying, having watched again, that Lacazette is playing a very important role in making the system work. But what you gain with him right now in terms of sort of overall fluency or overall contribution, you seem to be losing in the high leverage moments. Obviously, there's the pullback he hits straight at the keeper. There's the one-on-one that he doesn't score. There's the header that he doesn't get to. There's also a lot of moments where we we just saw him not really making those runs that make you available for Odegaard to stab a little ball behind the defense or for Saka to curl one to the near post. And so... Is there a scenario where someone like a Martinelli, who's so progressive and and so uh, tigerish in his running and so hell-bent on getting into those spaces, where losing a little something in maybe your fluency and buildup is worth it for what you get added in, in high-leverage moments? I mean, are you sold on the idea that for these next 16 games, we just persist with Lacazette, or is there another way forward? Well, yeah. you're reading my mind here, right? So I think... <laughs> As I was explaining to people about the different pods, the, the key about the central spine is that we ask those two players to do one and a half jobs, right? So we expect Pai to, to deal with that, defend it, defend in front of your centre-backs, also be the release valve for everybody else and keep it unprogressive. So we really overburden that player. And fortunately, most of the times he can do it, right? So when he doesn't, we, we critique the value of the signing and go back to our stats and metrics, blah, blah, blah. But for me, he does that role very, very well. And we also overburden Lacazette because, you know, he's a central player. He's, he doesn't really have a striker ahead of him. He's meant to come back, work back, lead the press, and also combine on, on both pods on either side and also get to the pods and get shots off. We all know he doesn't do all of those things all of the time. But he's a critical glue player. He sometimes, as use Paul's phrase, corrals the press down one side, particularly maybe onto our, our right side. If they're clearing it down there, they're clearing it to Tomiyasu, who heading it back into you, into our right pod, and off we go. Right. So, and I and I love one and a half job players. Right? I love that. If you look at Martinelli, I think he has the skill set to do one and a half jobs. I think he can press, he can harry, he can keep it, he can combine. And in the box, he doesn't switch off and have a rest. In fact, he switches on, you know? Mm. And I think if you're looking for the next progression of Arsenal, adding a left winger with size and devastation and speed and carrying that attracts people to him maybe makes Martinelli the option at centre-forward. Because the way we play it today... 
he, he, you need an all-action guy. Do you know what I mean? You need an all-action mm-hmm. guy that does lots of different things. And if you can think of a more all-action guy than Martelli, I'm here all week, right? So I, I think he – the more I think about it, I haven't always thought this way, Ellie. You know me. Um, I think at this moment in time where he plays off to the left, he's great. But when we have that left option, I'm talking about a, a Saka clone with a right foot that drives – I would like a six-footer, you know, six-footer leggy so you can hit him in the air from distance. You know what I mean? And you can really have some physicality. You're thinking for the summer, I'm thinking you need a – either righty from the left, either centre forward or all action tall target man, so you have that option. Right? So and that would be your two signing. You reincorpor you reincorporate um, Balogun into that framework and you lose Lacazette and Eddie. Also we just lost to Bamiyang. So three for three, right? Mm-hmm. And and you incorporate that into your into your team. And, and I really like that. And I really like that. But the fact we've got a player who's twenty years of age that can kill it off the left, potentially kill it in centre forward spaces in that central zone but also play some very good early games off, off the right yep. I, mean, I, don't, I don't see a problem <clears throat> you know the same thing that Man City do they rotate their players Foden centre left right Sterling left right Grealish centre left false nine this is what we want good footballers that can handle the ball in different zones of the pitch and and make us feel that our hope index doesn't disappear you know, and and I think this is this is what's so exciting about this group. There's a great basis from which to build on, but if we add more penetration and devastation in wide areas, but also all action down the centre that keeps people near you, we're only gonna we're gonna get in somewhere, aren't we? We're gonna get yeah. in somewhere, and that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if we want to be front footed and we want to press and we want to turn turnovers into attacks. You know, I, I understand, again, I, I want to be clear because I, I feel torn on this as well. I don't think we have the perfect solution. I think we have a player in Lacazette who is doing a really, really excellent job of tackling back, of connecting play, of linking and playing in the other players. It's funny, he's linking but not stretching, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and, and I think in Martinelli, if you really just want to commit to, you know, a situation where we are going to try to press teams off the ball and turn quick transitions into goal-scoring chances, and that means that you bring in a Smith Rowe to play off the left, and you put Martinelli in the center, and you let him do what he does chasing people down, and you play balls into him running in behind quickly, and you try to have, you know, maybe you don't build the play as nicely in the middle as you would with Lacazette there, but maybe you create more high leverage moments, more moments in behind, more shots. You know, the other thing you gain by doing that is by bringing in a Smith Rowe, maybe he drops in just that little bit more in a way that a Lacazette does, maybe not to central spaces, but so that he can connect and you let that center forward just be an absolute nightmare for defenders to follow and track and try to keep the ball off of. And, you know, we don't have to make this choice right now because I think we're playing well enough and picking up points. I mean, granted, January wasn't great, but, but like... It's not broken per se. It's, it's not, not where we need to start to go and and manufacture changes for changes' sake. But I <clears throat> I definitely think that let's put it this way, Clive. If Lacazette wasn't available, that would definitely be the direction I'd want to go. Yeah, we're looking ahead, right? So uh, um, you mentioned Smith Rowe. This is a player that whenever I whenever I go, I can't stop thinking about him. But when I don't go and I'm watching on TV, I, I maybe don't appreciate how good he actually is. And what he's really good at, Elliot, is he really, his ability to receive the ball 
is unbelievable. I mean, no matter what, how the ball's fired at him, the way he brings it in, controls it, turns around. It doesn't always turn around, but when he does, you're thinking, crikey, why don't you turn around more often? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He really has got ability, and his ability to really make things happen and see things and execute in the final third is something that we really need. And so if, I know he, just because he wears his socks like Greenish, but he really is developing into that player. You know, as someone who could, could play from the left, as somebody that attracts people and combines. But also, I think he can play as a false nine. And I know we laughed when he did that, but he absolutely can play as the, as that guy, potentially does the Odegaard role, or a bit more central, receives it and connects into wide spaces. I think we just need to develop people that can do multiple jobs. Then we can all have fun about putting them in slots. And those slots should be different on any given day. That's how I look at the game. And I don't worry about Smith playing left. Smith playing left with Nuno on the outside, that really works. It mm-hmm. really works. It worked very well in the games that I saw. So it's always it's always about the balance. And I think sometimes, you know, you know, I don't like to be obsessed with first 11s. I just want to have good players. And where this squad is going, we want about 18 really good players that we're jostling for and arguing about where they're going to play and who should be playing. At moment in time, that first sort of 12, 13, 14 is in our heads and we're just hoping they stay healthy. So we're not quite there yet, but we're not far away and that will change over the uh, summer, no doubt. Yeah. <clears throat> well, we look ahead to Brentford quickly and I, I think, Clive, like they're one of the most tackling teams in the league. Uh, they are the most tackling team in the league, in fact. When we played them the first game, obviously missing pretty much every player you'd hope to have available for the first game of the season. None of the new signings, none of the key yeah. players that were prior to the new signings. And we went away to a ground that was rocking, coming up to the Premier League, to not just fans, but also broadcasters that were rocking in favor of Brentford. And like, yeah. it was a humiliating experience for us in many ways, and, and, and I think an unjust experience in some ways. And so we owe them one. I think it should be pretty easy for Mikel Arteta to get his team up for this one. Um, not that that should really be the deciding factor. You should should always be able to get up for it. But yeah. we know the threat that they bring. They're going to try to press. They're going to try to tackle. They're going to get into us. Obviously, we don't want to get mixed up too much in that because we'd like to finish the game with 11 men, which is increasingly difficult for us to do. But we we know the very specific challenge that they're going to give to us. So I'm curious if you think we need a unique kind of approach to handle the way they play. I mean, look, their form has not been great. They are, you know, roughly one of the less good teams in the league defensively and roughly one of the less good teams in the league in terms of a tackle, though they do have an excellent player at the top who can put away a chance if you give it to him and can bully center backs given the opportunity. So what do you think of the sort of, you know, I don't want to make them out to be better than they are, but the unique challenge they they present to us and how we might approach it. So, yeah, they do they do go back to front a bit, you know, and they spread the pitch much like Wolves do. Um but Wolves go to wing-backs on first phase, whereas they can go to the front men and then drop it down, fill in behind and play from there, right? So, so this is why my inkling for holding this weekend is, you know, is that's where I'm going with it. Even though Sergio had a great game last game, I would bring holding in if if Tomiyasu wasn't fit and play White as right back because they switch it into that right-hand zone quite a lot. And White took a lot of stick for that first game. I thought it was very unfair, but that's the way it is, why we didn't win. And um, also, he played with Pablo Marie, and he won't be playing with Pablo Marie this weekend, right? So, he'll be playing with Gabriel, who's not bad. He can jump out of his boots, and also he can run with anybody. So, I'm not worried about that. If they give it back to us a lot, 
well, we know we can build from the back and we can play through teams. So I think the real issue for me is not defensively, it's what we do around the box and how the tempo by which we play at. And they have a back three in Christopher Ayer, who used to play for Celtic. Um, Janssen, I think he was at, I think he was at Leeds, wasn't he? And uh, Pontus Janssen. And Ethan Pinnock, who's uh, a player that I've been looking at for a little while, comes from Jamaica, so that's why I'm interested. <laughs> and uh, a very physical player, very good in the air, six foot 100, jump, jump really high, and very good in, in collisions. And I just think we have to show some agility and speed around these guys and really play at a tempo because they're big. And if you play, not that we can anyway, but if you play the crossing game a la Burnley, we're going to struggle. If we start running through people and really doing one-two combinations and cutbacks, I think we'll be absolutely fine, right? So think five-a-side football this weekend at tempo and then move those big bodies around and, and, and keep them pressed back. And so they go long, we pick up again with our base pod and off we go and we go into our, into our wide areas and triangles, etc. So that's what I would do. I think tempo is important. I have the scar of Burnley in my head and I want that gone. I've already forgotten the first 45 against Man City where I was not talking about lack of tempo or anything. If we can get back to those levels, we're going to blow this team away. I think it's very important that we do because I think the Wolves game, which I'll be going to, will be will be an experience. I think it's going to be a very big game for us. And um, if we do Brentley, uh, Brentford, sorry, um, if, we, if we sort them out properly and then we go to Wolves, and I would have said four from six before we played Wolves twice in three weeks, I'd have been happy with. But Brentford's got to be done. You know, Wolves are a competitor. We cannot lose to them, but we must beat Brentford. They must be beaten because the other teams won't lose to them, if you see what I mean. So they must be beaten. If we draw against Wolves, it's not the end of the world in the context of the 16 games, but the Brentford game allows us that slippage. But obviously, I don't want to see it happen. I'm just trying to put a bit of perspective. No, I it. think the reason we got to win these games now is a few things. First of all, it's a run where United in particular have their hardest games coming up. City away, Liverpool away, the the two Atleti ties wrapped around some of that, and and they have Spurs. Then their their running gets a little easier. Not not easy, but a little easier. Spurs, they have the easiest run into the three of us, but they've got some hard games coming up. The problem for us is the Liverpool and the Chelsea game have been pushed back. Plus, we have United and Spurs. So if we don't do well during this sort of, you know, I will put easy in quotes, but easier run we have now, then we get ourselves back in the position where we're going to have to pick up some very tricky points, um, yeah. you know, toward, towards the, the later part of the season. I should point out, by the way, when we faced Brentford, one thing that's forgotten, I, I don't think it was a great game. We played with it. I mean, let me just remind people, you know, who, who was playing. Leno in goal, Tierney, Marie, White, and Chambers, Shaka and Lakanga. Martinelli, Smithrow, Pepe, and Balogun. Um, you know, now there are a lot of players in there that we would right now regard as pretty good players, but it was a pretty makeshift side. And I should point out also that, you know, in that game, not that stats tell the story, but we outshot them 22 to 8. Yeah. I mean, we really did put them under some big, big pressure in that game. The problem was just they converted a couple of opportunities. You know, obviously the big issue I thought was Pablo Marie, who just, you know, couldn't live. Well, the center backs in general couldn't live with Ivan Tony. Like, I think it'll be a little different having Gabriel in there, obviously, and Ramsdale with his more progressive way of dealing with things. But I just think in general, we're going to have more of the ball now. We press more now. We, I think we look a little more press resistant now than we did at the time. So it's it's obviously a very different team and a very different situation. Um, do you expect, by the way, Tommy to be back for this game? Um, I 
if he's fit, I would think about it seriously. Um, but I'm not too worried about this game, for my view. I think um, the Bulls game could be more important. Um, like I say, I, I would think about holding for this game just because of the fact they pay three monster centre-halves. And it's just to help us defend the set-piece when they do get them, which they will do, long throws, etc. But, um, but look, I, I think the most important thing is how we attack in this game. I really do. Um, as I say, tempo, tempo, tempo. Put them under pressure. Move them around. Keep that going for longer periods. We did it for literally 15 minutes against Burnley and we looked fantastic. It wasn't long enough. We ran out of juice, right? So we just need to do this for longer periods going to Brentford, and I think we'll be absolutely fine. Yeah, and, and look, I mean, the real test, maybe even more than the opposition right now, is the pressure, right? Is knowing that Champions League football is there for us. You saw how much it meant beating Wolves. Every game now feeling like a cup final. It's cliche, but it does sort of seem like that's how the players are approaching it, and that can be a good thing, but it means they, they really have to stand up to the to the pressure. You think we'll get it done, Clive? I think we will. Saturday night drinks are waiting for me. I can't wait. All right. Well, I'm about to let you go. But before I do that, um, you know, one of the things that we have to do before we can let Clive go is uh, bore him to tears with the sponsors. And I'm not going to do an interesting segue. I'm just going to do them. We can hear him groan and moan and, and then we can let him go. But I have to keep him so he can do the indeed at the end of it. So let's get this out of the way. The first thing to talk about, obviously, is Manscaped. Um, you know, I feel like at this point, if, if you haven't done this yet, then that's your fault, not my fault. Like, I've done my job. I've told you how great the products are. I've told you uh, how great the deal is with the, the 20% off free shipping. But again, it's the, about the lawnmower 4.0. I'm going on a trip. I'm getting on a plane after recording this. And one of the things that I have to do as part of my pre-flight thing is shower and 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 groom. And to get into that shower and see that Manscaped lawnmower 4.0 in the shower, I mean, it's such a joy. I know I'm not going to nick myself. I'm not going to be trouble. Get the body cleaned up quickly, effectively with those beautiful ceramic blades so that they don't nick. They have the skin-safe technology, a long battery life. I can then throw it right into the shed bag that they gave me, take it with me. I don't even have to bring the charger because the battery lasts seemingly forever. It's just so long. Wet, dry, great light, great product. And I can bring the toner, I can bring the deodorant, I can bring the, the cologne, one brand to handle all your body needs, all your grooming needs. Go to manscaped.com, use promo code ArsenalVision, 20% off and free shipping. Manscaped.com, promo code ArsenalVision. Get your 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Now, if your body is taken care of, then what you need to take care of as well is your business. And the best way to take care of your business is to hire the best talent. <clears throat> if you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Indeed, inst Indeed, instead of spending hours on multiple job sites, spend it on Indeed. Hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process through time-saving tools like instant match assessments and virtual interviews. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. The offer is valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 job credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Clive, is that enough of that? Indeed. Okay, but we go from strength to strength. Tim's here now. Tim's on Twitter. Roberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Uh, so there was a fans forum, uh, the other night, a chance mm -hmm. for and Keteshem to talk to some fans and the fans to get some answers from the club about a variety of things. They talk transfers and things like that. We'll get to that in a moment, but I thought the most interesting takeaway was that they clearly listened to the podcast because, <laughs> um, they were 
talking about renovating the stadium, which is something we had talked about on the last episode. I had expressed some concern about whether, you know, renovating a stadium is really the the Kroenke model, but they did say it needed it. You know, let's put it this way. In real estate, you have different types of houses, right? You have teardowns, right? We have to tear it down and, and rebuild. And then you have fixer-uppers. And I think their, their, their suggestion is that the Emirates is a fixer-upper. It needs a yep. bit of roof. It needs some new screens. It needs some improvements. So let's start there. In terms of you know, making the Emirates Stadium feel like the contemporary crown jewel that it felt when it was first built, you know, how much work do you think really needs to be done? And do you think they spoke to the right things that, that are necessary to make it feel, um, to feel like it reaches that status again? Yeah, 100%. And none of, none of this is, you know, enormously surprising. The stadium's 16 years old now, so it's not it's not new. It's not old either. Um, it just needs a few things doing to it. So um, those who've been inside the stadium this season will know that at least one of the screens has been on the blink um, for a few games this season. And obviously... You know, uh, high definition technology has updated somewhat since 2006. So, um, you know, they're going to sort that out. And yep, completely understand that. The the roof sounds like the kind of the most pressing. Um, the, I, I did read somewhere that it leaks. I'm not sure that it leaks. It's got a deliberately slanted roof because um, it wants the liquid, like the rain, to find the turf, basically. But they've right, slanted yep. the roof in a way that it doesn't go into the fans, but it goes onto the pitch. Um, but the, the roof needs doing um, again, and that sounds like the biggest um, of the jobs. But but yeah, the, those are like and like the PA, the sound system is absolutely rubbish. Like it's really bad, um, and and actually, I think it kind of always has been. Um, and again, that sounds a bit more long term. But I I think in terms of, I don't think supporters notice those things quite as much as they do the fact that the seats are going orange. And like paint is peeling off the cannons on the outside and things like that. So like, I think those things need taken care of the most. With, with the cannons, obviously, they're consulting with fans on what they actually want on that wraparound on the stadium. And I imagine they'll do what, what Wembley and um, the London Stadium West Ham do and have a digital screen. I imagine that will involve some advertising as well, which is fine. Um, also, uh, some people might not know this, but there is actually a really advantageous advertising opportunity because if you get a train north out of King's Cross, mm-hmm. anywhere north, you go past the Emirates Stadium and you go past the facade. So there's actually, like, if they if they wanted to turn it into advertising, there's actually, like, potentially non-match day advertising there because they know trains are bolting past that stadium hundreds and hundreds of times a day. And effectively, they've got a massive billboard there if they want it. So if they put up a digital screen, like, on non-match days, they could advertise whatever the hell they wanted on there, quite frankly. I think maybe on match days, Arsenal fans would want something a bit more warming and welcoming. But if they wanted to advertise you know, um, crypto or whatever the hell they want to advertise. Like, I think there's an opportunity for them there. But yeah, I, I think it's the more cosmetic stuff that fans are noticing at the moment. And like, you know, if you go into some of the seats were painted, like um, I think during lockdown, but some weren't. Like mine certainly wasn't. Mine's mine's basically pink now. So I think just little tu- little touches like that are, are really what's needed. Yeah, it's a fixer-upper, right? I mean, it, you yeah. know, it, anyone who owns a home knows that it's a perpetual battle against time and wear and tear, and so <laughs> the Emirates is no exception, but the bones are good, as you said, and, and we can, you know, we can fix it up. It's funny, Tim, because a lot of people pointing to SoFi Stadium 
and in particular pointing to like the screen at SoFi Stadium and you know how impressive that is and whatnot. And like the thing that you realize if you go to a, a football match, Premier League football match, versus going to an NFL game, and I don't know if I, I would strongly doubt you've ever been to an NFL game. No. Like the overwhelming majority of time, nothing is happening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and There's big breaks and right. Yeah. Like one of my favorite sports to go to is baseball. Mm. Let me tell you how much I hate baseball. I find it to be like watching paint dry. But you know what I like? I like imagine, being outside. Yeah, go ahead. It, it, I imagine it's a little bit like um, going to cricket. It yeah, is, yeah like- like, exactly. You're outside in the summer at a stadium that has been built expressly for the purpose of having great food and drinks. Yeah, And so you drink phenomenal alcohol and you eat great food and you're like, does anybody know the score? Does anybody know what you said? Like, you, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm sure there's some, some devout baseball fans listening that think this is sacrilegious. But my point is that when, you know, when I was at the Emirates, I wasn't focused on the screen. I wasn't focused yeah. on, you know, I, granted, I, you know, I know the food can be better. A lot of people have complaints about that. But like, it really is a situation where 90 minutes you're sitting there transfixed on what's happening on the pitch, ideally, if you're not being bored to tears, you know, with, with one break in the middle to try to hit the toilets and maybe get yourself a drink. And so, what a stadium needs when the the focus is what's happening on the pitch is very different from what a stadium needs, you know. And like in football, for example, there's so much weird stuff happening that you can't necessarily see from your seat. So the screens become a way to actually see what's physically happening or to be entertained in the in the in the interim periods. I mean, you know, during the NFL. So like, just a very different set of needs from a stadium. Yeah, you know? and yeah, and I think there's a <clears throat> excuse me. There's there's a couple of other things going on here as well. First of all, COVID has changed the way that people enter stadiums and. You know, Arsenal took that break, um, I, I think, uh, out of necessity as much as anything, but with a year of people not coming into the stadium, they're doing things like, you know, my season ticket is now digital. I haven't, we, yeah. we do have like a, a plastic card. I haven't used it all season because it's in my Apple wallet um, and things like that. So they're upgrading the turnstiles because more people are, are using that now and they just need like to give the turnstiles a bit of love. But also because of like COVID checks and things like that, which aren't happening as much now but you know covid is an ever kind of shifting landscape and soon enough there will be another variant and cases will rise and there might be need to take some measures what's kind of happening is people actually are spending more time in the stadium they're getting in earlier and so you had at the beginning of this season for example arsenal did like a, to their credit they did a buy one get one free beer offer if you mm. got in like within you know, no, no later than 45 minutes before kickoff because, I mean, obviously it's a great moneymaker for them. Uh, well, I don't know, actually, giving away a beer to everyone, maybe it's not a great moneymaker, but it gets people in the stadium early. And I took advantage of it several times. I really liked it. And so, like, the sense that people are getting into the stadium earlier, at least for now, and what, um, you know, a club like Tottenham have done, to be fair, Tottenham is different because Tottenham is, just frankly, not as nice an area as the one uh, around Arsenal. Arsenal has a lot more like pub, restaurant, food choices in the immediate area. But Spurs, what they've done is like they have this enormous bar downstairs and they keep it open for a couple of hours after the game. And they just kind of say to people, why not have your post-match beers here? And uh, and they have good beer and, you know, they, they do things like that. It doesn't seem like Arsenal have the same appetite to do that at the moment, although I do un- understand they've, uh, they've put in more beer pumps mm. um, because they've started doing it before games a little bit. And I do wonder whether they'll try, you know, whether they'll make, I, I don't see why they shouldn't try, um, frankly, um, to do that, albeit, 
you know, that wouldn't be great news for the businesses and the pubs around the stadium. But I don't see why they wouldn't try and at least say, like, because at the moment in the Emirates, the bar at Block 10, which is kind of the most busy one, that stays open for about 30 to 40 minutes. Like, that stays open for one beer after the game and then you've all got to get out. And, and that's kind of a bit crap, particularly in COVID. Like, I've been taking advantage of that. And one of the guys I drink with after games is over 70. He's not completely, understandably, not comfortable going into pubs yet. So, you know, we might we meet at the stadium, you know, in Block 10 afterwards and have a beer there with him. And, you know, to, to kind of be chucked out after one, particularly in COVID times, feels a little bit unnecessary. But I don't know if this is stuff they'll look at, though. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This is going to sound crazy, Tim, but like <laughs> the Emirates wasn't a critical part of my match day experience mm-hmm. when I went to the Palace game. Like, And what I mean by that is, obviously it was, the game took place there, but like I obviously did not have my pre-match or post-match drinks there. Mm-hmm. And the stadium had to provide me essentially one thing, a seat so, yeah. where I could see the action. And it did that suitably. And the rest was was sort of you know, peripheral to me. Um, and maybe it's because I'm used to the American stadium experience where like, I'm not transfixed by the sporting spectacle. So I demand more of the ground because mm-hmm. I'm going to eat a lot and drink a lot and spend time in the concourses and wandering around and, and trying all the different food offerings because I'm making it more of an event than I am concerned with the, with the, the game that's taking place. Yeah. And, and you'll be in there several more hours. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like that's NFL actually an interesting point. Baseball, yeah. Yeah. You're going to be there three and a half hours or four hours in some instances. So, yeah, I mean, so I, I think you can absolutely turn the Emirates or or update the Emirates to be an experience that is more than suitable for elite top-level yeah. football. You have to put that elite top-level football on the pitch, to be fair. But but you get my point, right? I, I, yeah. I think... It doesn't need a lot need, doing. Right. Yeah, it doesn't need to be um, an amusement park in the same way that some of the some of the American grounds sort of need to be because they're not putting on a spectacle that people are quite as interested in consuming. So, okay. Um, so let's, uh, well, let's pivot to a few more things that came out of this. I mean, they talked a little bit about transfers and I guess the only thing I would say is, you know, most of it is milk toast stuff that you probably could have predicted the answers to, but I, I'm at least encouraged in the sense that they essentially acknowledge like, look, we're in a good position and January is not our favorite. It's not the easiest. We didn't find anything we really liked. And what we didn't want to do was make a mistake, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think the exact quote was sort of like, to get this club back where it needs to be, we need to make as many right decisions as we possibly can. And we need to be very disciplined. And I know that that bothers people because they just want us to go splash cash and bring in players. But I think we can agree that being disciplined and making good choices now when the project is looking promising for the first time in a while and the direction is looking um, is looking encouraging that we don't want to screw it up with a Willian, you know, yeah. type signing where it's short-term and thinking and doesn't provide the boost we need and then we're saddled with it. Yeah, absolutely. And what I, I thought the most interesting thing they said was they tried to bring things from the summer forward um, and essentially couldn't. And that that kind of encourages me. As much as, um, you know, you can ask whether they should have shown a bit more flexibility and things like that. And, you know, was there a plan B and things like that? I, I think that those are reasonable asks. But the fact that they were looking to bring stuff forward from the summer says to me, like, that we know who, the ne- who we want the next signings to be and we have known for a little while. Um, and that's the plan we're working to. And therefore, their targets, it sounded like, 
are targets that they'll either revisit um, or that they had in mind for a little while. So it, it seems to me that they didn't do the, oh, fuck, who else is available? Um, and, and you know, look, I, I, I've got time for the argument they should have. I've got time for the opportunity cost argument. I've got time for the kind of, look, we've got a shot at fourth here. And if you even if you bring in someone quite good, you probably get it. But um, I do think Clive made an interesting point on the pod the other day that, like, um, Arteta and hopefully Edu are trying to build a team not just that gets into the top four, but that stays there. So, like, buying a quite good player might get us over the line this year, but if Manchester United sort themselves out and, you know, Conte stops being um, hilariously miserable about the team he's managing, um, (laughs) then maybe a quite good player doesn't do it next year and the year after that, but we're saddled with that player. So I, I always said that as much as I... I think that there was like an urgency, particularly for a striker that, you know, I said halfway through the window in a weird way, I'd be encouraged if they didn't do anything because at least it means they're not panicking. And and I do take a bit of encouragement from that, I have to say. And, and not least because I just don't have enough of the details about what else they were offered. And we're told that they were offered a card on loan and things mm. like that. And like, I, I can't see him meeting the non-negotiables. No. Um, <laughs> I, I think if a Bamiang is a bit rich for your blood in that respect, I'm not sure Mauro Icardi is, gonna, is really going to solve any problems for you. But um, yeah, I... I I think tentatively, in in lieu of some missing details, I think tentatively I back the club on this. I think I do. Mm. I mean, I, yes, I, I, I do as well. Like, would I like them to find something creative to make us just that little bit stronger? I would have liked it, but there's this presumption that it exists. And, exactly. you know, Arson famously said, it's not a supermarket, right? You can't just pick products off the shelf the options may have been an expensive long-term signing on a player that isn't who we want or nothing. And I do choose nothing in that scenario. Um, a couple of other things. They talk positively about Jack Wilshire and, and doing a lot of work with Perrin in the Academy, which is great, but no plans to integrate him in the first team. Fantastic to have him around. I think that's nice. You know, I think Jack mm-hmm. Wilshire is a big enough name and personality and, and connection to the club that, you know, and I think interestingly, Tim, we always sort of think that like, oh, the big success stories are the ones who can help the kids. But I think Jack maybe has a little bit of cautionary work he can do as well, you know, in terms of where his career went wrong. Now, a lot of that was out of his control in terms of injury. But I bet, you know, I bet he has a unique perspective on what it's like to be arguably the biggest young talent in the country and to not reach the heights that he would have liked in his career. And I think that lesson can be important for the young players. 100%. 100%. There used to be a guy until very recently involved with, I think, the under-18s, uh, Ryan Gary. And um, Ryan, Ryan Gary was a youth prospect at Arsenal in the early 2000s who was immensely highly rated. News didn't travel about academy prospects <laughs> then like it quite like it does now. But You mean there was- wasn't a channel de- dedicated to him? <laughs> no. <laughs> he, he was seriously rated, though, and he was he was in the first team picture around 2002, 2003, but ended up having to retire because of a, a series of consecutive knee injuries. I think he only made like a couple of professional appearances in the end, but he was involved in the academy for, for a pretty long time. I, I think you're right. I think that is a unique perspective. I've also listened to interviews with Jack um, when he kind of first came to train with Arsenal a few months ago now, and he kind of said, look, if this doesn't work, I will start on my coaching journey. And I wonder whether he's already, like, I'm I'm sure he'd be open to an offer, 
Um, but he has been training with us for quite a while and he doesn't have one. Um, you know, I, I don't think he was ever going to get one from us, but whether he'd get one from somewhere else, I think was the question. It doesn't look like he's got that, but he, I, I did hear him say in interviews, you know, look, I'm curious about coaching. I want to stay in the game. I've started doing my badges. And I do wonder whether that's how Arsenal are helping him more than uh, at this point, more than like the training and staying fit and trying to get a contract. Um, it, it's, it strikes me that at the very least, they're trying to take care of both sides of it. Mm. for him um and and i do think that that's that's like a a good thing for them to do because i i just i can't see that he's in any state to play for arsenal he hasn't played professional football in over a year and that was at bournemouth and you know without being unkind bournemouth decided not to keep him on in the championship so i i think that gives you an idea of what his level probably is at the moment unfortunately <clears throat> so if arsenal can help him on his coaching journey i think at this stage that's that's probably even more positive than like giving him a couple of games for like Arsenal and him not being up to the mark and then nobody touching him. Yeah, yeah, well said. Um, there was some stuff said about the Amazon documentary, nothing particularly revelatory, revelatory there, but the, the last thing from the fans forum that I think would be good to dive into is just the questions and discussion around uh, the partnership with Socios. Is that how you say it? Yeah, Socios? I, I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, look, we all exist in our own online bubble. And so maybe the bubble that you listening to this right now exist in is different. The bubble I exist in, people have a very negative reaction to this partnership. And I have to admit, right, like I have tried to keep an open mind about, you know, digital currency and tokens and, and non-fungible tokens and, and to try to understand it without bringing a lot of bias to the topic because there's so much polarization online now with every topic and you have to love something, you have to hate it. I understand all the reasons to be against this stuff, why people are very turned off to it. Um, I, I've tried to keep an open mind about that space generally. And mm. even there, even as someone who has tried to keep an open mind, I really find myself extremely turned off by the Socios partnership, extremely antithetical. Uh, Empathic, and, and, and yeah, yeah. Um, it just, just I, I don't like it. How about that? We'll go, we'll go with basic language since it's very early in my time before nine a.m. Still, um, yeah, I don't like it, and and it does feel like scamming fans. And there's been a lot of dishonesty apparently in their in their advertising initially. And when the it was promoted, they said there will never be any trading. This is not you know not saying you trade, and yet they are doing trading. Mm. Um, you know, in the terms and conditions, it appears that your token really only has any value for as long as the partnership goes on. So if the partnership were to end, your token may be worthless. There's sort of an illusory benefit of oh you can you know vote on what message the players see walking out of the tunnel but like I, I want to keep an open mind about the space but this specific promotion feels like just it, it feels like avarice for the sake of avarice it, it feels like mm. taking advantage of the fans you know providing an illusory benefit for for financial gain and I I, I like I said I don't want to be a closed minded person I just I find this one pretty hard to swallow. Yeah, same here. When you look at the most recent advert as well, there's there's a lot of small print at the bottom of the screen now because this is still a pretty unregulated industry. Um, crypto, I, I'm like you, like right. So NFTs scam, okay? Uh, pyramid selling, absolutely basic. I think I've said before I've worked in like um, you know, worked in like financial fraud investigation. NFTs, all of the hallmarks of pyramid selling. Sorry, um, crypto. I, I'm with you. I, I don't. Think that's quite the same, but 
ask yourself why this stuff is being aggressively marketed. Because one thing that you probably know better than I do is when people make money off of something, they don't tend to go around going, hey, guys, look at how I made all this money. I did it exactly this way. And you can too. Like People don't do that when they make money. I would like to be able to say that I know that better than you do, but unfortunately, I have to demur there. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? People don't tend to share the secrets of their success quite like that. No, no, of course. If you've got the ingredients, the golden ticket, yeah, you you don't want to share it. Um, but it's it's aggressively marketed for a reason it's because they need more players in the market and ultimately they need more players in the market because you know there needs to be money uh to be profited from um that that's why stocks and shares and you're not allowed to market those in quite the same way and so this obviously this is such a new space it's so unregulated i'm with you because you're you're potentially in this for a lot more than like the price of a football shirt um, or a training top or something. And and I agree. I, I think there's something very, very unseemly about that. You can do that. And like the way it's marketed as a like engagement and, you know, having a say in your club and stuff like that. I, I agree. I think it's very, very grubby. Um, and I don't like it either. And I think when you have to put loads of small print up, and this is only recent as well, because this is a very developing area in like fiscal law, and you're putting like lines and lines of T's and C's about like, you know, what this is and what this isn't and things like that. Like, yeah, no, not well, for me. And here's the thing, right? I, I tend to be the type of person who does not want to in, infantilize the populace. I mm-hmm. think there's too much infantilization that goes on where we want the government or this group or that group to regulate things because people are too dumb and can't make choices for themselves, right? And like, I, I think that's condescending. And Mm -hmm. I think by and large, we should allow people to make choices for themselves and sometimes even bad choices or mistakes. Like that's part of life. But I think there are cases where there's exploitation and where something's exploitative or takes advantage of communities that maybe are are less able to make those good choices. And the thing that worries me here is it is leveraging fan sentiment, which is a very exploitable sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. And probably doing it to some younger people. Now, I don't mean six-year-olds, but maybe it's people in their early 20s with a little less financial literacy or, you know, and by the way, I don't mean to be condescending because I'm not in my 20s and I still lack financial literacy. So, but but it's the point that like you combine the love of a club and the loyalty of fandom and you combine maybe some younger people who are a little more capricious in their financial decisions and you create a sense of FOMO and you trade on that. And and so that that worries me a little bit. You know, I'll pull the curtain back a bit here, right? Like, I consider the people who listen to this podcast a community. I talk about it as a community a lot because mm-hmm. I feel very connected to everyone. And so when we do a sponsorship, you know, we we don't have betting companies as sponsors, although there's been a big push to do that because I can't quite get comfortable with it. Um, we've had pushes to do NFT type stuff, and I haven't done it because I can't get comfortable with it because I don't think it's necessarily reflects a, a care and concern for the community. When we do a Patreon thing, you know, like, I'd like to think that's good value. I think we we try to put out a lot of good content, and I, you know, I think people feel like they, they get something that's a value. And when you know, when I talk about Manscaped, like I do have the lawnmower 4.0. I like that product. I think it's good. Um, Arsenal is a community, and the fans are a community. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to protect them, and they have to be able to trust you. Trust that you're going to put a good team on the pitch, right? Trust that you're going to win football matches, but also trust that when you say you care about them and love them and want to want to support them, that it's not talk right? That there's yeah. something behind it. And this feels exploitative. And I think you want to always try to avoid in a community setting where there's a sense of loyalty and togetherness. You want to you want to try to avoid exploiting that. And this, yeah. this just feels exploitative for me. Yep. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, undersign all of the above. 
Yeah. So, all right, let's let's pivot as we we finish off here to, to a topic that you've written about, mm. which is Alexander Lacazette. Um, there is a fixation on Lacazette now because yep. he, you know, because he's striker and striker's important, but because of Aubameyang leaving and because we don't really have anyone behind him and, and, and Kedia feels less and less usable is harsh, but I'm going to say it usable. <laughs> um, every other option is a a trial type option saying we're you know we're not sure of like can Martinelli be a striker um and so there is a fixation on Lacazette and because he's not scoring at the rate we'd like to he just missed a couple big chances and yet he's kind of doing an okay job you know he's Mm -hmm. he's kind of enabling the system to work I do have a feeling that the fixation on him is also that people have decided if we're going to get top four it's going to depend on him doing whatever this job is that he has at a good enough level because there's nothing behind him. So you've written about Lacazette. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what you've had to say and the fixation on Lacazette as the the key to being able to unlock the door to top four. Yeah, I think it's fascinating because this last few months, this is the last few months of his Arsenal career. He's been made captain, which speaks to his professionalism, by the way. Everyone know everyone knows he's almost certainly going and he's still been made captain and he's always been regarded as a really good professional. But what I find really fascinating about this is his Arsenal career is being bookended by short half seasons without Aubameyang. I think the presence of Aubameyang has taken a lot of heat off of uh, off of Lacazette. And when I say that, I don't mean he's deserved loads and loads of criticism and he's been saved from it. But like, look at the way Giroud's scoring record, for example, was kind of really scrutinised because we didn't have another guy. Right, he was getting like twenty goals a season, which which is good. But we wanted the guy who gets 30 goals, like 25 to 30. And Aubameyang's been that guy that we have at the, at the least have that expectation of. And so it's taken some of that off of Lacazette, which I think suits him both as a player and probably as a personality. That's gone now. And that like the focus is on, the pressure is on. And when you think about how Lacazette will be thought of by Arsenal fans once he leaves, I think it entirely depends on what happens in the next few months. Like, Essentially, I think if Arsenal get in the top four, it will almost certainly be because Lacazette has played well. Um, whether he's scored goals or whatever, I can't see us doing it and him playing badly. I just, I just don't think that that mix really exists so like he has a chance to to like literally lead this young team into the champions league not go on that journey with the rest of the team you know to leave the young guys to it and say all right did my bit i'm off back to leon now and that that's like that's actually quite unique but if arsenal don't do it and for example he feels the pressure a bit and he continues to miss big chances which to be fair he doesn't usually do He's actually he's usually quite good with big chances. The the frustration with him, I think, is the fact that he won't try half chances, if that makes sense. Yeah, it just so happens it was the reverse against Wolves. But yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, he, he had four shots against Wolves. So that's good going. I, I do wonder a little bit whether he's feeling the pressure a bit. And that's, you know, maybe partially explains the misses against Wolves. Well, he Burnley apologized for the big miss. And like, yeah. well, I think there's something admirable about that in a way. I don't know mentality wise if that's how yeah. like a really lethal striker does it because their attitude is don't worry I'm going to get three next game you know yeah exactly exactly and time will tell on all of this but yeah I think it's a really unique opportunity for him because he could play really well he could score the winner in the North London derby or whatever and and that's the thing like if he scores four goals before the end of the season like what what you know let's say let's just pluck that number out the air what type of goals is it like you know um, 
the third goal in a 3-0 win against Brentford that we're definitely going to get on Saturday? Or is it like the winner in the North London derby, the winner against West Ham, like the equaliser against United? Like what type of goals does he score? What type of contribution? And that and that's it's almost certainly unfair to judge his entire Arsenal career on what happens in the next few months. But at this point, I'll reach for my Louis Theroux in the porn director um, analogy again when he's berating this poor man who's having stage fright and Louis Theroux says to him, do you think that's that's helping? And he just goes, that's the job. If he can't do it, I'll fucking get someone else to do it. <laughs> and that, and that's, that's the job. Uh, that's the job for him now. Whether, yeah, the problem is he can't get someone else to do it. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, and and it is it is the case that like everybody knows that's a position we can strengthen. It's going to get really exhausting repeating it for the balance of the season. Yeah. And so the question is like, can he do enough of things? The, the funny thing is, Tim, a lot of times when we get frustrated with players, we get frustrated with them you know, because they're not good enough, certainly. But also, you know, maybe they don't feel like they're trying enough or there's, you know, as important to the project going forward. Well, whatever the case may be, there are reasons to get frustrated with players. I do think that Lacazette is a player who is playing for that next big contract and he is giving his all. And I mean, we put the captain's armband on him last game and I I don't think that, you know, look, it's been a cursed, it's been a cursed armband for a while now. So I don't think that tells you anything. But like, I can't fault the commitment that, Lacazette is showing in doing a job that, you know, let's face it, he is a striker. I'm sure he'd love a job where he could just stand on the edge of the box and occasionally get on the end of a chance and smash it in, but he's not ha- not being able to play that way. He has to tackle back. He has to connect and link play at the halfway line. He has to try to play in these young forwards. Um, and he's doing it. And he's doing it, I think, mm. pretty well, such that even without his own goal contribution, we're just about good enough, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And he, you know, he might, in his mind, he might not score another goal all season, but if Arsenal score loads, again, that, again, it's impossible to imagine that Arsenal will play really well in attack and score loads of goals, even if he scores none of them. Like, he will have a big part to play in that, um, one way or another. Again, I kind of think scoring no goals, that probably wouldn't happen, but if he scores like two or three or something, um, but, but yeah, like, ultimately what Arsenal do, like a lot of it does depend on how well he plays. It is that simple. Cause like you said, we can't put anyone else in really. Um, I mean, other than in but that doesn't, doesn't really uh, seem like an attractive option at the moment. So like him more like I'd say really the, the players you're looking at at the moment, like him, probably Thomas party um as well he he's probably the other one the closest in the squad for whom there just isn't a replacement really for what they do especially um, in the role he has now as more of a, a base of a three instead of a double yeah. pivot <clears throat> yeah exactly like nearly everyone else you could say yeah we, we can replace them with someone of equivalent quality no but we can replace them with someone but like party and lacazette those two to me those are the real pillars where if we lose one of them for like a significant period of time, then for me, <laughs> things look look quite uneven. And that's um, and that's like Lacazette is not even that good, if that makes sense. Like he is good, but do you know what I mean. Like you wouldn't usually pitch him as like the uh, the irreplaceable player in the team, but circumstance just makes it that way. So circumstance yeah. is what it is. And and like you know, everything's two sides of a coin because. Brentford were massively outplaying United. Uh, not Brentford, pardon me. Brighton were massively outplaying United. One sloppy turnover at the start of the second half. Cristiano Ronaldo, top of the box, slams it in the corner. And yep. they win that game. 
you know, then obviously Brighton go down to 10 men and what whatnot. But like, and then you look at Lacazette, we're up a goal, down a man, in alone on goal, 1v1 with the keeper, misses. Now we do go on to win that game, so it doesn't matter. But like, those are the margins. Not having someone who makes a game safe that otherwise might be dropped points. United have that. But the flip side of that coin is, United have been playing like crap in part because when Ronaldo plays, they don't look like a team. You know, when Lacazette plays, we work. So you do have to see both sides of it, which is, okay, could we use the guy who can just slam it in from the top of the box? That would be nice. But at least we have a guy that enables a system that can help us play better football. And so we just have to take what we have. I'll finish with this question then, Tim. Is he sufficient in what he is doing that you just got to use Lacazette the rest of the way? 16 more games, 16 more starts, and get over the line. Or is there a scenario where you'd say, you know what? Maybe in a home game against a mid-table team, maybe if he's had an off game or he's looking a little sluggish, I'm going to try Martinelli up there and, and use Smith Run left and switch it. Or, is it. or is it really the case that this is not the time for tinkering? This is the time for just putting all your hopes on Lacazette? <laughs> yeah, I, I think our best chance is continuity. Um, I really Fair enough, do. Yeah. I, th- I think maybe Martinelli in the last 20 minutes of a game, that's that's something we could do, take Lacazette off. You know, for Smith Rowe, for example, put Martinelli through the middle, particularly if we're in a position where maybe we're a goal up and there's a bit of space and we can counter. I, I think managing Lacazette's minutes is probably more about doing it in-game um, than between games. Um, you know, that that decision might 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 be forced on us something might happen to Lacazette but yeah I I do think that we've probably like I can't think of many games in this run-in where I think oh yeah just like I mean we've got Norwich at home right um but even like I don't even think Norwich looked terrible you know um I, I don't I don't think there's a team in this league I look at and go oh god yeah we can definitely rest every like Sheffield United last season, like that team doesn't really exist, I don't think. Like Burnley are only bottom because they've played so few games. Like, yeah, I, I don't see like real, like we played Watford at home and, and beat them 1 0, um, and they're in the relegation zone. So, yeah, I, I just well, don't Tim. see many games in this running where I'd, I'd do anything else. Yeah, Manchester City just won 5 0 <clears throat> away, I believe, in the first leg of a, a Champions League knockout tie and they've had a bunch of tough one nils against the quote-unquote bad teams in the premier league like i agree with you i just think the teams are well coached there's enough talent you know you're gonna get lucky some games and and blow a team away but by and large you know or get lucky with COVID absences like we did against Leeds or whatnot but yeah i i because i think these games are all going to be tight um i do agree you got to stick with continuity and you have to hope you have just enough to get over the line and and part of it is hoping that the other teams don't get on a run. You know, the, the one thing that encourages yeah. me, and I think I said this on the last podcast, is it's not so much that I see Arsenal becoming all-conquering the next 16 games. I have a really hard time believing United or Spurs are suddenly going to turn into a very, very good team. You know? Mm-hmm. And so we just have to hope we stay a decent team and they stay not decent teams, and that, yep. that could do it. All right, I think we can leave it there. We'll have an instant reaction pod after Brentford and then all the regular pods next week. Uh, I know this was weird timing, Tim, so thank you for being accommodating. My pleasure as always. All right, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Thanks everyone for being here. We'll um, we'll have a lot more coming up and 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 a few fun guests that we have lined up. And next week we've got a, a, a midfielder uh, extravaganza. We're, we're going to look at midfield candidates for the summer uh, as one of our midweek pieces of content so i look forward to that in any event i hope you have a wonderful weekend i hope you enjoy the game i'm sure it is going to be absolutely brilliant we owe them one so we love you and we will talk to you after arsenal 10 brentford note